0: Well, friends, we're walking through the book of Kings. You can find the passage that will be on on page 293. There's a Bible right in front of you. If You don't have one. You're going to want to keep that open. We're going to walk right through it. We've been working through the book of Kings, and Kings has one big idea. It's tracing God's promise to David, King David. God's trace. The passage, the book is tracing God's promise to David. To King David. God made a promise to King David in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. Here's what it says. Here's the promise. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's going to be this forever king that's going to come. And so that was the promise that God made to David. Kings is tracing that promise. The son, the immediate son, biological son of David was Solomon. And David told Solomon, as Moses told the people of God centuries before, he said to Solomon, follow God's commands and you'll be blessed. And the people will be blessed. Don't follow God. Don't follow uh, God's word. Therefore, you'll be cursed. Solomon started good, we saw. He loved God. He ruled wisely. But eventually he began to love money and women more than God. Such that his heart was led away to following other gods and to lead Israel to do the very same thing. And so the Lord, of course, was justifiably angry over Solomon's divided heart. That's what we saw. And so he told him, he told Solomon, we saw this last week, he told him that he would judge his people by tearing the kingdom apart. That was last week in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 11. Because of his idolatry, the kingdom was going to be broken apart. But he wasn't going to do it in Solomon's days. He would bring judgment after Solomon died and his son came to power. But even though that, that kingdom would be broken, he would not forsake that promise to David. So he would keep the royal tribe of Judah and that royal city of Jerusalem as it were. And last week we saw that Solomon he dies, leading us to conclude that Solomon was not that promised king. We're going to have to look for another one, which is what Kings is going to do. That leads us to chapter twelve, verses thirteen, uh, chapter twelve and chapter thirteen, and the slide towards destruction picks up steam, guys. Big idea this morning: a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That's what we're going to see. Take a look at chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So all the people went away. Friends, right off the bat, we learn something else about Solomon, don't we? It sounds as though Solomon treated the people of God much the same way that Pharaoh treated God's people when they were enslaved. He was hard on them. Instead of Solomon serving them in the love of God, he used them for his own purposes. To grow his power, his wealth, his fame. And so these people, as a result, understandably, want a lighter sentence with this new king. And so Rehoboam has a decision to make. This new king has a decision to make. Is he gonna, is he gonna be the same as his dad? Is he gonna be a little lighter than his dad? Is he gonna be harder than his dad? And more than that, the question that we have, right, is, is Rehoboam Going to serve them. Does he see himself as a servant in the word of God? Be that promised king. Well, verses 6 and 7, Rehoboam goes to the old men that counseled Solomon. He asked them what they thought. And verse 7, they said, that, listen, if you, Rehoboam, if you see yourself as a servant, then they'll serve you. Well, Rehoboam doesn't like that counsel. So he goes to his pals, goes to his buddies, his boys that he grew up with. And he asked them, what do you guys think? In verses 8 to 11, his buddies tell him the exact opposite thing. Instead of telling them Rehoboam to speak as a servant, they tell him to speak as an even more harsh master. Rehoboam goes back uh, and says to Israel in verse 14, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And then listen to the voice of the narrator. Guys, this is so important. When you're reading the Bible, listen for the voice of the narrator in the movie, as it were. Verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of right, More on Jeroboam in just a moment. But guys, this story illustrates something that we oftentimes understandably confuse. It illustrates for us divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You can see that right there in verse 15, that these two are compatible. Right? This decision by Rehoboam to be an even more harsh master was his foolish decision. He made it, and he is responsible for it. But at the very same time, Scripture teaches us there in verse 15, it also teaches us that this is also part of God's sovereign plan. He told Solomon right in chapter 11, verse 11, that his anger, God's anger would result in the kingdom being torn apart. And as referenced here, Ahijah told Jeroboam that the kingdom would be torn apart. He told him that back in chapter 11, verse 31. And so the prophecy at this point is going to be fulfilled as God has ordained these events. But he used the very real decisions of Rehoboam to bring it about. The Scriptures hold these two things in tension as equal realities, not separate contradictions. God is sovereign, bringing about events, and we are responsible, and he uses those very real decisions that we make. Both are true. They are compatible. And what comes next as a result of Rehoboam's decision is this judgment that God promised. The kingdom is indeed torn apart in two, just as the Lord said. Take a look at verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah then King Rehoboam sent Ador, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day, which, by the way, gives you the perspective of the author. Verse 20. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah. only. Friends, if you look in the very next passage, you see the tribe of Benjamin also remains. But because of Benjamin's small size, in addition to its being surrounded by Judah, they are often included as being one with Judah. But regardless, this is a tragic set of events. God's people left Egypt. They left Egypt to come into this promised land as 12 tribes that were going to have this one singular mission to display God's glory to the nations as this one people under this one true God. They were doing that. They were coming into the land to be that kind of a people. But all of it is upended quickly. And division sets in amongst the people because ungodly kings led them in their own selfish desires To serve other gods. Leading them to commit spiritual adultery. And division broke up these people that God made for himself. Kingdom is torn. And in the case of Rehoboam, we learn that he leads Israel towards division by making things harder on the people of God. Instead of serving the people in the word of God as David did. It's an important point. In the case of Rehoboam, we learn that he leads Israel towards division by making things harder on the people of God instead of serving the people in the word of God. He listened to youthful voices that led him to believe that harshness would secure his position as king and make the kingdom better. Instead of doing as the Lord instructed, as the elders instructed, as David instructed, and see himself as a servant of God in the word of God to the people of God, he doesn't do it. And even after this, after this moment when the people are torn apart, Rehoboam still doesn't learn his lesson. He kind of runs away. He didn't judge, he didn't read the room real well. He runs out, but then he comes back to Judah and he gets in verse 21. Take a look there. He gets 180,000 soldiers between Judah and Benjamin. And then he marches them up to fight against Israel. Guys, that's where we're at. We got civil war breaking out. But thankfully, the Lord sends a prophet in verse 22 by the name of Shemaiah. And he speaks the word of God. And thankfully, in this case, Rehoboam listens and peace ensues. No fight happens. But regardless, friends, we learn from Rehoboam, leaders who make things harder for their people in order to serve themselves, you should know, has never been the way of God. That's what Rehoboam did. That's what far too many Others have tried to do in leadership since him, from politics to princes to parents to pastors, leaders going beyond the word in order to bully those in their charge into serving their own purpose. That is not the way of life. It never works in the end. I've been saying this throughout this entire sermon series that the best leaders are those that see themselves under the greater authority of God as a servant to the people of God in the word of God. That's the best kind of leadership. Those that those in leadership that see themselves under a greater authority of God. That's what the men, old men counseled Rehoboam. That's what David modeled. That's what the son of David is supposed to be. Servants of God to the people of God and the word of God. But that's not what these kings are doing. Solomon Wright abused his position by accumulating women and wealth for himself, disobeying God's clear command to serve the people. Rehoboam does something similar by propping himself up above the people. And the result was the judgment of a divided house. And insecure kings, eventually, that lead the people to darkness. So the question remains for all of us this morning. What kind of leader are you? How do you lead in your home, in your businesses, in your group of friends, in your community group and the like? Do you see yourself as a servant or do you see yourself more like Rehoboam? Having others to serve you, feeling the need to kind of be harsh in order to kind of get people to accomplish your own agenda. If I were to go to those in your charge and ask them what your leadership would like, Would they say that it is though they have no inheritance? No part of what you are seeking to accomplish. Would they say that they kind of feel more like slaves? Not like family, not like friends, not like people they're endeavoring to be served. And friend, where is the fear of God in your leadership? As evidenced by your willingness to obey the commands of God. Are the Lord's commands mere suggestions, sort of like condiments, That you sort of choose to fit your own agenda? Or do you rule in the fear of the Lord by laboring to get those around you inside of the good and gracious commands of God? Which one would describe you best? Well, friends, I can tell you as one of the pastors here at Restoration Church, it is our intention to follow the old men's counsel to rest. That's our desire. That's what we want to do. We want to, as pastors, as elders of this church, we want to serve you, that you would serve God and serve one another in the word of God. We see ourselves as servants. We have no interest in trying to make things unnecessarily harsh on you in order to get you to serve us. That is not our desire. In fact, the teaching of the word is so clear on this. If you look in First Peter 5, 1 to 3, where we get some teaching on elders of churches, When Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's a leadership not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. That's what Rehoboam did not do. That's what we as your pastors endeavor to do. Me and the other elders of this church have been given oversight. We've been given a kind of authority, and that authority is given to us for the purposes of service to Christ and service to you. We see ourselves as servants, which is exactly the way that the king of kings saw himself. Jesus the Christ. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. And likewise, friends, your pastors should see themselves that way. And so should all of us see ourselves in whatever positions of authority we have been given under the greater authority of God for the service of God to the people of God out of the conviction of the word of God. Rehoboam was a fool. So were his friends. May we learn from his mistakes and go the way of Christ, the true son of David, in all areas of leadership, that others may prosper in our stead. And likewise, friends, may we also learn of the foolish leadership of Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam, we've met before, right? Remember, he was one of the leaders that the Lord raised up as a form of judgment on Solomon. That's back in chapter 11, verse 26. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 40, Solomon tries to kill this dude, but he flees to Egypt, as we learn. But after Solomon dies, dude comes back to town. And we learn in verse 12 that he's already seen as a leader to the northern tribes, a kind of spokesman, as it were. And that then leads us into kind of the some of the early days of the broken up kingdom. Take a look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levite. So, friends, it was, it was King Rehoboam's selfish insecurity that led him to be harsh to the people instead of a servant. And here we learn that it is King Jeroboam's selfish insecurity that leads him into being lenient or easy on the people of God. You get one insecurity is trying to be harsh, the other takes a different approach, also insecure, leads them to being lenient. You can see that there in verse 26. Jeroboam knows that the law teaches God's people to go back to Jerusalem. Right, for the various festivals and sacrifices. So if he didn't catch that, Jerusalem would be in the other kingdom that sort of remained faithful, as it were, or at least are under the care of God. I guess they're both under the care of God, but this is the other side, as it were. He's afraid that those folks are going to go back. If they obey God and they obey God's words and they go back to Jerusalem, he's afraid they're going to want to re- rejoin Rehoboam's kingdom. So what does Jeroboam do? Well, he creates a kind of convenient Christianity. And this kind of quasi-Christianity probably sounds familiar to some of you that know your Bibles. When Jeroboam fashions these two calves of gold and says, behold your gods, we remember what Aaron did in Exodus when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law. He does the very same thing. Here we are again, back to making golden calves, calling them God. The same God, by the way, that delivered them from Egypt. That's important to note. Note that Jeroboam is not denying the worship to the one true and living God, not denying the narrative of the Old Testament gospel of bringing brought them out of Egypt. No, but he's, what he's doing instead is he's recre- recreating this God in his own image to suit his own passions. For Jeroboam, he's doing this, and he's doing this in an effort to kind of get some peace so that he doesn't get killed and he can keep ruling again, he's taking the opposite approach of Rehoboam. Instead of being harsh, he tries to be easy on the people. And notice the language. Look there in verse 28. You've gone up to Jerusalem to meet with God long enough. Let me bring God in Jerusalem to you. And we're going to need some temples, right? Well, let me build some of those for you guys, too. Make them a little closer to home. We're going to need some priests at these temples, too. So well well, we'll get some Levites. well, we don't have enough Levites or we have no Levites. Well, we'll just get whoever wants to be a Levite to be a, temp, a priest in these temples. I'll, I'll sort of do that for you guys too. Jeroboam doesn't think he's creating a new religion. he's just accommodating true religion to the people so as to make it easier on them so that they will be easier on him as their king. In order to validate his own position. Jeroboam's made following the Lord a little easier on them, so he thinks. Rehoboam makes things harder for his own selfish insecurities. Jeroboam makes things easier for his own selfish insecurities. Both are are interested in their own kingdom more so than they are the kingdom of God and his revealed will for them. And so whether whether the word is, uh, whether below the word or above the word, these kings are leading people straight into darkness. And needless to say, the Lord is not pleased. So take a look at what happens. This moves us into chapter 13. Chapter 13, we get this dude by the name of, that's only listed as the man of God. He's never given a name outside of that in this chapter. Chapter 13, this man of God comes out of Judah, this is important to note, by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Bethel would be on the other side. So he's going kind of from one kingdom to the other one. And so in chapter 13, the man of God comes out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, where one of these kind of convenient Christianity churches are located, kind of shows up there. And when he shows up, he finds Jeroboam standing to to this altar that he's made up, worshiping God in a way that the Lord did not command. And as Joabim sort of sitting there practicing his own kind of accommodating Christianity, the man of God sent by the word of God speaks up. And that's verse two. O altar, altar. This is the man of God speaking. O altar, altar. Thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. So he gives this prophecy. He's speaking to the altar. Jehovah's probably going, what in the world's going on? Right? But it's not a good prophecy. And that prophecy, guys, that he speaks comes to fulfillment in 2 Kings 23, verses 15 and 60. Well, we'll get there next March or so. It's important to know this, though, guys. He speaks this prophecy, and these exact things come to fruition. Repointing us to the reality that the author would want us to see the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of his word. But after this man says this, Jeroboam, of course, is upset about this, and he stretches out his hand from the altar in verse 4, and he says, kind of get this dude, get this man of God. And Jeroboam, at this point, receives an amazing mercy from God. It's a strange mercy, but a mercy nonetheless. Jeroboam's hand when he says this when he points out his hands to get this man of God it dries up He can't pull it back frozen and about this time verse 5 says the altar falls apart and when the altar falls apart also all the ashes that he's burning stuff goes up in the air I mean imagine this moment right everything's going everything crazy nuts right That's what's going on. And all of this, the text tells us, the text is telling us that this is a prefiguring of what King Josiah will do years down the road. A little bit of preview of coming attractions. So Jeroboam, of course, what would you be doing if you're Jeroboam? You're kind of wigging out, right? He's wigging out in this moment. He's going, what's going on? I can't, what what is going on at this moment? So at this point, verse six, he then says, entreat now, he's speaking to the man of God, entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God then prays and then man's Jeroboam's hands restored. And then what happens next sets up one of the strangest stories in all of the Bible. I mean, I'm sure when some of you read this passage this week, you were like, man, I'm going to pray for Nathan. What in the world world is he going to do with this thing? All right, so let's, let's do a little homework before we get into this story. The first and most important thing that you and I need to understand when we go into the story is we need to understand that it's connected to everything that came before it and what comes after it. That's so important. That's, if I could impart you know, the top ten things in Bible interpretation, this would be in that top ten, maybe that top five, that stories are not just sort of randomly thrown in there. They're connected to one another. So this story that we're about to read is connected to the stories of Solomon, Rehoboam, but especially Jeroboam. All of these kings not loving the Lord by not obeying the word of the Lord, as David did. It's connected to that. This story is meant to be a kind of real-life parable of what happens to people when they don't obey the Lord, even if they're tricked into it. That's how serious it is. Obedience to the word is that serious. That's the whole point of this story. It's illustrating all that's come before, but it's especially illustrating all that's coming after. And you can see that this little story is meant to illustrate, especially Jeroboam, because you'll notice slide down to verse thirty-three. You'll notice that the author comes back to Jeroboam, so it's like Jeroboam, Jeroboam, Jeroboam. That's the kind of order of this story. You'll notice, right? You get this story of Jeroboam at the at the beginning of the story, and then at the end of the story, and this one's squared in the middle, so as to illustrate it. And look at what comes after this crazy story that we're about to read, verse thirty-three and thirty-four. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again among all the people. Any who, would, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. So again, let me just give you that order, right? You got Jeroboam creating his own accommodating Christianity. And at the end of chapter 12, and then in chapter 13, right, you get the man of God comes to warn Jeroboam and of the judgment coming to him as a result of this. And then the Lord gives that severe mercy by afflicting Jeroboam. He could have killed him, which is what he's going to do to the man of God. You'll see that in a minute. But he doesn't. He just gives him a little bit of taste of it. Then after he's restored, we get this strange story that we'll read, followed by a postscript to Jeroboam's rule about his disobedience to the word. And so, guys, if you just follow the author's intentions, You begin to zero in on the idea of some of these strange stories in the Bible. And again, the point of this strange story is merely to remind ourselves of the importance of being completely allegiant to the Word. Okay, y'all ready for it? Some of you are going, man, I can't read to read this thing. Haven't read it yet. All right. After the man of God prays and the Lord restores Jeroboam's hand in verse 7, Jeroboam says back to the man of God, hey, man, come back to my crib. I'll give you some food and some water. He invites him back home. Thanks for the warning. Appreciate the restoration. Come on back and we'll eat and drink. And then verse eight and nine set up the plot line for that story. Here it is. This is the man of God speaking in response to Jeroboam's invitation to come back with him. He says, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. So basically what the man of God says is he says, man, you could give me the entire West wing and you can go live up in the, in the white house. I ain't coming back and hanging out with you. And why? Here's the key. Why will he not do that? Because the word of God told him not to. Look at chapter 13, verse 1 again. It was by the word of the Lord that the man came to Bethel. And he's coming because of the disobedience to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the man of God would not disobey the clear revelation of the word of God. And again, disobedience to the word of the Lord is the whole point of this crazy story. Ten times, guys, in this one chapter, we see the words by the word of the Lord. If you go back in there this afternoon and just highlight it. You see that that word, by the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, 10 times. See it in verse 1, verse 5, verse 9, 17, 18, 20, 21, twice in 26 and 32. So the man of God was instructed by the word of God to not have table fellowship with people in a place that is an open rebellion. And guys, basically, this is very similar to what Paul counsels in 1 Corinthians 5. When he got people taking the name Christian and yet living in open rebellion, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, don't even eat with them. Same thing happening here. Don't go do it, man of God. And so, man of God does good. He doesn't go back with him. But then in verse eleven, we learn about some other prophet. Only this guy. Only the only language we get of this guy. He's always called the old prophet. So the old prophet's kids. They come bolting in the door and they're like, Dad, let me tell you what happened today. We saw this guy by the man, a man of the Lord. He speaks some words. Jeroboam's hand dried up, right? He came good. All's good. Things crashed down and this prophecy is going on, right? And so the old, the old prophet says, oh, man, I want to go meet this guy. That's what he does. So he tells his boys, like, hey, listen, go saddle up the Ford Mustang. We're going to go down the road, see if we can find this guy. Saddle up the donkey. Down they go. And they're driving down the highway, as it were, when they come to this man sitting under an oak tree at a kind of rest stop. You know, maybe like at a, like at a picnic station eating PB&J, whatever, right? There he is. They find him. And in verse 14, the old prophet asks if he's he's the same guy that came from Judah. The man of God says, "Yep, that's me. I'm the one. The old prophet says, come on home and eat with me. All right, guys, what should the man of God say? No, right? Look at verse 17. He does good. Can't do it. God told me not to. I can't do that. But then we get this. Verse 18. And he, the old prophet said to him, that's the man of God, after he just told Noah, he says, well, listen, I I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat and drink water. But, listen for the voice of the narrator, guys, but he lied to him. So the old prophet is lying to the man of God that he got this word. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. What should be our response? Uh Uh-oh, right? That should be what we're thinking. So the man of God was lied to by the old prophet of God. And as they're sitting there, maybe, you know, eating some nature's own and drinking some Dasani water, they're sitting there. The old prophet gets an actual word from God and speaks it to the man of God in Verse 21. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he to- He said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb with your fathers. In other words, because you disobeyed the clear revelation of God, you're going to die. And so after this, man of God Gets on his donkey, heads on down the road. And then as he's heading down the road, straight up mauled by a lion. (laughs) Dead. Yeah, I told you it was crazy. The lion and the donkey just sort of stand there next to him. The old prophet hears about this, saddles up his donkey, heads down the road finds this guy, finds the man of God, and just as the Lord had told him he is judged, he is dead, he picks up the man of God, throws him on his donkey, and he heads back down to and buries him in his own grave. And he says, as he does this in verse 31 and 32, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord, against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. And as I already told you, it does come to pass. The author seems to want us to identify the old prophet as one with the man of God, both of them believing in God's promise about this judgment. Promises that were spoken of many years in advance and then come to be true. But your questions, I got, man, listen, you probably got five questions. I got 10 questions, right? Why does the, why does the man of God get such a severe like, judgment? I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is, right? Why, why did all this happen when he was lied to? Like, doesn't seem very fair, right? I, I don't know. The author is not interested in answering those questions. What he is interested, we have to be asking the questions that the author is trying to answer. And what he is trying to answer is simply this. He is interested, the author is interested in helping us understand the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Rehoboam, the sins of Solomon, and the sins of all the kings that will come after them. That you cannot compromise on following the clear revelation of God. That's the point. Listen to this passage. Many of you know this. Galatians one eight. But even if we this is, if you're not familiar, this is a New Testament passage. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Friends, the man of God had opposed, or had had a supposed angel from heaven preach to him a different gospel, and he listened to it and was accursed as a result. Beloved, don't disobey God's clear revelation. Even if you're being tricked into doing. It. now compare this to Jesus, who was time and again tricked into trying to disobey words. Remember him? Time and again. Jesus had all of these things from religious zealots to Satan himself who would try to get him to disobey the word. Remember like Satan right in the wilderness, quotes the Bible to Jesus to try to get him to do something, and what does Jesus do? He quotes the Bible right back to Satan. He says, no. Right? So he's not going to let himself be tricked. He's going to follow the clear revelation of the word. Later, Jesus himself would say, when people are trying to stone him for uh, his reference to him being the son of God, Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken. That's how allegiant Jesus was to the word. He was the better man of God, as it were. He knew the word. He knew that the word could not be contradicted. And so he went with the clear revelation of the word. And when it seemed as though it seemed to be in some kind of tension, he went back to the Bible and made sure that was the clear revelation and followed that. He didn't listen to any angels that came down and spoke to him contrary words because his allegiance was to the word. And so again, here's the point of the story. If the man of God could be judged for disobeying the word of the Lord, how much more will Jeroboam and the kingdom of Israel be judged for inventing an accommodating kind of Christianity, as it were, that directly opposes the clear revelation of God? If the man of God's going to be judged, how much more Jeroboam, who's making stuff up, in order to prop his own kingdom up. And so, beloved, as we walk through these kings of Israel, you will see that Jeroboam is the standard bearer for the worst of kings. Time and again, you're going to see this. Every time we look at a northern king, it's going to be bad. Going to, he wasn't as bad as Jeroboam. That's going to be, we're going to see that time and again. And it's precisely because of this point of compromise. Jeroboam led Israel into a kind of, into a kind of convenient Christianity that wasn't a Christianity at all. Jeroboam was like that old prophet deceiving people and leading them into darkness and death. And he had a clear revelation. And Israel had a clear revelation to not do these things. And this kind of deception that takes the name of, uh, well, I keep calling it Christianity, this kind of deception that takes the name of true worship, friends, is just as apparent in our world as it was in his. We have just as many kings and queens, as it were, trying to lead us to do the same things that Jeroboam did. Because, of course, as Solomon himself wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. We are tempted in just the same way that Jeroboam was. We are tempted to disobey the revealed will of God in order to make it easier on ourselves so that we can keep whatever place we might have in the world. We're all tempted to this. Writing more than 200 years ago, William Wilberforce wrote this. He said, quote, When earthly reward is of the highest value to us and worldly shame is viewed by us as the greatest of all possible evils, we are prone to change the course of our obligations to God and seek a way to do them that avoids the consequences of taking a stand against the cultural norm. We seek to serve God, he says, in ways that enable us to keep earthly gain and avoid worldly disapproval. Or, he says, we just simply quit attempting to serve God altogether. Friends, this is exactly what Jeroboam did. And again, this is what we're tempted to do ourselves. Construct kind of golden calves, construct worship centers, construct ideologies that are more accommodating to ourselves so that we can keep our position in the world, so that we can fit in so that people don't kill us or cancel us spit us out. Surrounding ourselves with priests that are not Levites. That is pastors or teachers that are not biblically qualified to be pastors or teachers and just as Paul warned Timothy years ago, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We live in those last days, guys. A house divided against itself cannot stand. You Can't take the name of God and then try to just contort all of his commands to a ways in which it fits you. A house divided against itself Cannot stand. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You'll obey my commandments. Either you are for me, Jesus says, or you're against me. There's two camps. There's not 20. We've been learning these kings' divided hearts led to idolatry, which leads to division and destruction and death. And the people followed those kings, and they were worse because of it. Likewise, we have all kinds of other authorities that we follow that are endeavoring to do the same to us. Earlier I asked what kind of leader you were being. Now the Lord is asking what kind of leaders are you following? Are you seeking to surround yourself with leaders like Jeroboam, seeking to make Christianity easier on you, more accommodating so that you can be both in the world and of the world? Are you following ones like that? Or are you surrounding yourself with voices that love you enough to tell you the truth? Friends, instead of listening to the older, wiser voices, Rehoboam listened to the younger guys that he grew up with. The man of God listened to another man who directly opposed the words that he was given by the war. Whose voices are you listening to? The reality is, beloved, we are being bombarded with voices that are seeking to woo us in their direction every single day. From the average of three hours a day that the adult person spends on social media to the six to 10,000 advertisements that we see on average in a day to the 24-7 news cycle that we regularly forget is a medium of entertainment, to our circle of family and friends that confidently lay out paths that are untried but confidently assure us that we or our kids, if we just do all of this little thing, they're going to turn out just like this. Beloved, we are awash with messages that are seeking to conform us to the patterns of the world. Away from the love of God. And here I get 45 to 50 minutes once a week to plead with you to follow Jesus. That's why we need each other. right? That's why we need to be part of a community. Not just sort of tapping in like this place is Jiffy Lube. Right? We need each other. We need to be fully ingrained in the life of this church so that people can know us and we can know them. And when we see people wandering away, it's no, don't go over there. You went where last week? No, no. what do you do? No. We need to be reminded of Christ, our king. He is the only king that you can trust that won't use his position to unnecessarily make it hard on you. He's the only king. Unlike Rehoboam, Jesus was faithful. Rehoboam added to Israel a yoke. And meanwhile, King Jesus comes along and says, cast all of your burdens on me for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. That's your king, beloved. Unlike Jeroboam, he won't compromise God's word. He lived it. He didn't turn to the right or the left as the kings of old did. He taught it clearly, openly, honestly. And because of his service to the people of God on the cross and in the resurrection, he's now able to empower us to live it out. Where else would we go? He has the words of eternal life. Nobody else does. Jesus alone not only has the words of eternal life, he empowers us to live it out so that we might enjoy the life that was intended. That God designed for us. This, beloved, is the ministry of the king of kings. The true son of David, Christ the Lord. This is his ministry. He is that servant king. Where Rehoboam and Jeroboam abused their authority by getting the people to serve their purposes. Jesus was the true son of David that used his position of authority for service. To the people of God. He was the true man of God that saw through the deceitful promises and remained faithful. And beloved, because he did, because he remained faithful, he's able to make a perfect sacrifice for all of the times that we follow foolish kings and foolish friends. He's able to make atonement for all those, for all the times that we, like the man of God, didn't obey the word and deserve to die. Jesus's perfect obedience is credited to all who trust his sacrifice on the cross for all of your disobedience. Your disobedience to the word is dealt with, beloved, on the cross of Christ. It's dealt with there. God's anger deals with it there. And Christ's obedience to you through repentance and faith in that sufficient work. His faithfulness gets credited to you by grace through faith. This It's amazing. This is the gospel. You can trust God when he says to go this way. and You don't want to go that way. He's proven it to you in the son. He's proven it to you in the king. By his resurrection power, he now can compel you by the power of his spirit to live it out and to be part of his kingdom, which is never fading. By the way, it's not going to be torn apart. Instead, by the power of the gospel, beloved, live out the agenda of the only king who was never divided against himself, but lived it out and gave himself up for you. He, Jesus, was and is the only true king that kept the law, that loved God and neighbor with all of his heart, mind, soul and strength. And he has given you, Christian, the spirit to now live a life that is no longer divided, but instead is committed to that one great end, to helping build a house that will never be torn apart. Where no weapon formed against it will stand. I your so brother and sister in Christ, church family, Jesus is your king. He's a good king. He's a faithful king. He's a servant king. And he was faithful to the end. He's got no division. He's proven his love for you that you can trust him. He's proven his love for us in this gospel. And so now from that gospel, Christian, resist the half-hearted kings of this earth that are endeavoring to use you for their purposes. And take up following Jesus until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood and womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful screams. No, rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is our Head, Christ. And beloved, if you are not a Christian, if you've not followed Christ as king, if maybe you learned, I've been following the wrong kings, if you, this, that, that's you, if you're one of these ones going, I, I realize now that I've been trying to follow an accommodating Christianity, if that's you, beloved, listen, there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. He's ready and willing to forgive you. He's glad to. So turn from all of that desire to try to kind of map out a way to fit in the world and yet reject his commands and yet still be in Christ. Reject that way of life. Turn from that sin. Trust in Jesus. Know that he'll forgive you. And receive that resurrection power life. Live in that victory that we sang about. And obey his good and gracious commands. And then join us here in the work of the church as we try to give ourselves to living for the kingdom of God here in the country of the earth. Join us. If you have more questions, more observations about that, come find me after service. Talk to the friend that brought you. But beloved, you should know, church family, you should know, a house divided against itself will never stand. Don't be divided. Follow Christ as king. Feel that freedom. Of obeying his good and gracious commands. Drink in his love. Trust his servant heartedness. And follow him all of your days. Till we get home to heaven. And beloved we'll be home soon enough. And we'll be glad that we gave ourselves. To following him our king. Let's pray to him now. Worthy are you, Jesus. Worthy. You are the faithful king who, unlike Jeroboam and Rehoboam, followed the word and led us to do the same. And you not only taught it, you embodied it. You did it. You are the servant king. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that your kingdom is not divided against itself. That You are building it from every tribe, tongue and nation. And soon enough, we will not only know that this kingdom exists by faith, we will know that it's true by sight. But until then, oh, God, give us to the work of following you, of trusting you, because, Lord, we are surrounded by so many voices. It's hard to know who to trust. Make us most of all to trust you and follow you. Thank you for this church that endeavors to do that imperfectly. Help us to do it all the more, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.